Hi, this is Corey Turner. And along with my wife, Simone, we are the senior pastors of Numa Church. I wanted to thank you for listening to our podcast today. You're about to hear a message from one of our team that we pray builds your faith and empowers you to follow Jesus more closely. Enjoy the message. And today I want to come and share with you something that burns in my heart because it changed my ministry, it changed our church. I want to share with you from the Word of God and encourage you over these past few weeks I have been profoundly touched by the ministry of sharing Jesus confidently. Last week, one more. And today I want to talk to you about a revival of restoration. Do you realise that restoration is the job description of Jesus? Isaiah 61 is the passage that Jesus chose, the prophetic passage that he chose to describe his own job description. Baptised and returning to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, the Bible says he went into the synagogue, they handed him the scroll of Isaiah and he unrolled it and read, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. He stopped reading at that point, but the prophecy doesn't stop. It goes on to say, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair, and they shall be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendour and they will rebuild the ancient ruins. God is passionate about restoration. It all begins with salvation, but it doesn't end there. God has an eternal purpose to share with us his own divine perfection. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. He has a design to share perfection with us. It all starts with sharing Jesus confidently. It all begins with that first time a person in their gut says to Jesus, yes, I will follow you. It's called salvation. We need more and more salvation. It doesn't stop there. And Helen and I feel called to invest the final years of our life in coaching and encouraging those who have a passion to see people in their salvation embracing restoration. And restoration grips people. What a privilege to be able to talk to you at the end of this revival, not just a revival week, but weeks of revival prayer, weeks in which we have been posturing our hearts before God and saying, we want more. We want to see our city, our nation and our world change. We want churches planted all over this world who are devoted to bringing Christ to the nation and not simply forgiveness, but the life of heaven invested in the hearts of people. And it grips people when that happens. Up on the screen, we have a picture of Sydney Harbour, the year 2000. And there emblazoned across that bridge is one word, and that word is 
eternity. Eternity. Mr. Eternity lived in Sydney. His name was Arthur Stace. Born into an alcoholic household and by the age of 12, he was a ward of the state. The age of 15, he was jailed. By his 20s, he was a scout for his sisters and their brothel. The age of 32, he went to war and he was discharged in very poor health. But in 1930s, in the 1930s, at the, uh, in, his, in his 40s, he heard R.B. Hammond share a message on Jesus Christ and he gave his life to Jesus. And two years later, as a young developing Christian, he heard the evangelist John Ridley preaching from the Scriptures on a, a message that he entitled The Echoes of Eternity from Isaiah 57, 15. This was his text. For thus says the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit. Why? To revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the hearts of the contrite ones. And in that sermon, that minister cried out, eternity, eternity, I wish I could sound or shout out that word to everyone in the streets of Sydney. You've got to meet it. Where will you spend eternity? Arthur Stace heard that sermon and afterwards he shared his testimony where he said this, eternity went ringing through my brain and suddenly I began crying and I felt a powerful call from the Lord to write the word eternity. I was illiterate. I could hardly spell my own name, Arthur. But the word eternity came out smoothly in a beautiful copper plate script. I couldn't understand it and I still can't. And then several mornings a week, he would arise at 5 a.m. And there with a passion to share Jesus confidently, he would walk the streets and write in chalk or crayon on the footpath the word eternity. He wrote it over 500,000 times. And it wasn't simply that a man wrote it, but that he was a life that had been transformed. It gripped Sydney. He became known as uh, Mr. Eternity. And there he was honoured at the turn of this century with that word, eternity, emblazoned over the bridge in Sydney. Revival touches people. Transformation catches people's attention. People need to see revival. They also need to see transformed human lives. There is nothing so powerful. The Bible says that we might be called oaks of righteousness the planting of the Lord for the display of his splendour, there is nothing more provocative, nothing more potent as an advertisement as to who God is than a fully transformed human life. Yeah. The glory of God is a man fully alive. And by the grace of God, we stand as a church to proclaim the name of Jesus and then minister the truth of that word in a way that transforms people and people need transformation. 
It's very interesting to recognise that this word eternity has now kind of been immortalised in aluminium, the aluminium replica of uh, his writing, of Arthur Stace's writing. You can go see it near the waterfall, near the town hall square in Sydney and remember that God touches people's lives and when he touches them and transforms them, transforms them, other people notice it grips people's attention. This issue of eternity unfolds in such a powerful and, inter- and interesting way in one of the parables of Jesus. I don't want to be offensive, but I call it the parable of the good Jehovah's Witness. You probably know it under another title. It's normally called the Parable of the Good Samaritan, but I'll explain to you why that title I think is so appropriate in just a moment. You see, this parable was spoken by Jesus as a result of a question. It was a lawyer who asked Jesus a question about eternity. The Bible says on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus' teacher. He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Would to God that every person in Melbourne would ask that question. That every person in Sydney, every Australian would wake up in the morning with this burning question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's the greatest question you will ever put to your own heart. What must I do? to inherit eternal life. Well, he was an expert in the law. Jesus is a great teacher, didn't always answer questions. He often responded with another. And as a result, he turned the question back to the expert. He said, well, you're the expert. You're the lawyer. What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? Well, wouldn't you love it if you could go to school and set your own exam? You say, what must I do to pass this test, teacher? And he said, well, just set your own exam. What do you think you should have to know and what you need to be able to say in order to pass this exam? Well, being a lawyer, he knew the answer to his own question. He didn't ask it to find out an answer. He asked to find out if Jesus knew the answer. And so he responded, "Uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. He felt very proud of himself. Jesus said, that's brilliant. You want to inherit eternity? Oh, by the way, it's a, bit, it's a silly question in the first place because the only way you can inherit anything is to be written into somebody else's will and then have them die. That's how you inherit. It's an interesting thing. It's how you become a Christian, actually. You need to be written into somebody else's will, the will of Jesus Christ, and after his death, you get to inherit what it was he has willed to you. But Jesus let the question ride and went with the question and simply said to him, well, outstanding. 10 out of 10, go to the top of the class, do this and you will live. Now the man has a problem. He set the exam himself and suddenly he's aware of the fact that There are two parts to what he just said. You shall love the Lord your God and you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Now, if he had been really, if he'd really understood things, he would have known he'd failed on both sides of that test. He had never truly honoured God. Every one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Nobody can say, well, I've done that bit. You know, I've I've, I've done everything a man can ever do to honour God. No, No, you haven't. 
But you see, he had reduced honouring God to a tick list of about 600 things. And he was a lawyer. He was keeping a tick list. And he figured his list on that side was going pretty well. But his conscience was honest enough to know that on the flip side, he had a problem. Because he just said to Jesus, I think my eternal destiny hangs on me loving my neighbour as much as I love myself. And suddenly he remembered who his neighbour was. See, he had a, a neighbour and his name was Jaime. And if he was honest, he had to realise he didn't even like Jaime. And suddenly he realized, my eternity is hanging on loving Jaime as much as myself. I don't even like him. And he realised on that side of the equation at least, he had failed to live up to the call of God upon his life. And when people know they've failed, they have to justify themselves. Why haven't you handed in your homework? Oh, the dog ate my homework. Justify yourself. Try to explain why you haven't obeyed the call of God upon your life. And the Bible says, well, you're a lawyer. You want to justify yourself. What do you do? Well, you take God's own word and use it against him. So how did you ever expect anybody to actually do this? Because you see, ooh, um, uh, I have no idea which neighbour you were talking about. Who is my neighbour? Why would he say a thing like that? He wanted to justify himself. I know I have not lived this kind of life. I'd still like to go to heaven. Lord, who could expect anybody to honour that part of the word of God? Because nobody really knows who we're talking about. And Jesus said, well, let me, let me help you out with that. Let me help you understand who your neighbour is. Let me explain to you how this could work. And I'll tell you a little story. And Jesus began the parable when he said these words. And Jesus said, in reply, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers and they stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Well, that's a pretty sad story. Now, why did I put this picture up? Well, because I've walked the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. 2012, I had the privilege of being in Israel. And one of the things we did over those three weeks, we actually took the walk. Now, I've been going to Sunday school since I was a kid. And so often you hear about things you've never seen them. You can't even picture what they're like. Well, here's part of the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. And let me tell you, if you ever want to rob someone, it's a brilliant place to do it. Because as you'll see in just a moment, uh, they can never get away from you. And there's lots of places to hide. And as a consequence, if you need to rob some, this is a place that could work. Jesus said he was on the way down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They beat the snot out of the guy, stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. But wait, help is on the way. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now, hold on. A priest, a man of God, a man who reads and teaches other people the Bible. He's passing by and he sees a guy beat up on the side of the road. He's half dead. He knows he's Jewish because he's half naked. He can tell whether he's circumcised or not. <laughs> he's lying there and he decides... He 
pass by. Now, why would a priest do that? Well, maybe it's because he was going from Jericho to Jerusalem. And maybe he lived in Jericho. He's going up to Jerusalem. He's going up to the temple. And he knows that if I stop and help this guy, um, and, and he dies while I'm here, I'm going to be unclean and I'm a priest and I've got to go and God's got to be blessed by my brilliant ministry. And if I stay and help this guy, he dies, well, God will miss out on my brilliant ministry. I've got responsibilities. I've got a congregation I have to serve. There's people relying on me. I have to go. But you see, that's not what's happening here. Because Jesus didn't say he was going up the road. He said he was going down the road. And you say, that's pedantic. No, it's not. that's how they talked about leaving Jerusalem. If you were leaving Jerusalem, you were always going down. If you were going to Jerusalem, you were going up. He said, a priest happened to be going down the same road. He's not going to church. He's coming from church. He's been in church. He's been preaching. He's been leading the worship service. He's been telling people about the amazing King who reigns through all eternity. How human beings are made in His own image. How profoundly responsible and how loved we are in the presence of that great God. But then, of course, as he's on his way home from church, he he finds a guy half dead on the side of the road and, and he doesn't want to stop. And now you've got to justify yourself. Well, how would you do that? Well, there's lots of ways you can justify yourself. Well, uh, it's not my ministry. I don't do half-dead people. I'm not an ambulance officer. I'm a man of the word. I'm a man of the cloth, pretty much the tablecloth, more than likely. And the, the reality is, I'm not trained to do this. And by the way, he's probably not part of our church. He may not even come to my congregation. I don't remember seeing this dude in there. And by the way, the football's on in 30 minutes and there's a shepherd's pie in the and whatever he justifies his own activity inactivity he passes by on the other side but wait that's what happened with a priest a Levite's on the way now a Levite may not be a priest he's a deacon He doesn't actually kind of do the ministry in the temple. He just helps the ministry in the temple take place. Maybe this guy was a musician. Um, maybe, Maybe he just set up the chairs, brought in the wood for the sacrifices, got the ashes out. But here comes a... a, a A Levite, a man of God, a man who's set aside to serve the living God. Surely he... But no, Jesus said, he passed by on the other side too. Justify yourself. Well, it's not my ministry. I don't do this kind of thing. I'm not qualified. The TV's on in 30 minutes. Jerusalem TV. I've got to head out of here. And tragically, he passes by on the other side. But wait, Jesus said, let me tell you about someone who did help. A Samaritan. A Samaritan. Um, Samaritans were people that Jews treated as if they were dogs. The Samaritans were an interesting group of people. Why do I call them like JWs? Well, because our JW friends are not dissimilar. They have a Bible that isn't that reliable and they've got a whole bunch of doctrinal ideas that just never came out of the Bible at all. And here you had a Samaritan and the Samaritans were a hybrid group of people. They were a group of people that were the remnant of the Assyrian assault on the 10 northern tribes. 
And they were a mixture of Jew and Gentile. And as history unfolded, they had just five books of the Bible. They'd set up their own temple and had their own priesthood. And Jesus would one day say to a Samaritan woman, you worship what you don't know. So Jesus didn't lie to them about their theology. It wasn't a perfect theology. But blow me down if a guy who maybe doesn't have perfect theology and maybe doesn't even own a Bible can see a guy on the side of the road and something in his heart tells him somebody ought to do something about that. How offensive that must have been to so many of the Jews that Jesus was speaking to because they knew they didn't want to stop and help. They wanted to justify themselves. But a guy whose theology wasn't so good and he didn't even own a Bible found it in his heart to recognise that this man needs my help. Now, one of the reasons why the powerful words of Jesus have had such an impact on Western civilization, the average Australian has no idea the degree to which we live under the blessing of a nation that has been framed by the words of Jesus. Not perfectly, but it has been framed by the words of Jesus. So much so that I can still, even in, in godless Australia, I can still use the term the Good Samaritan and people know what I'm talking about. See, Jesus coined that phrase the Good Samaritan. He coined this story. The average Australian doesn't realise how much of the compassion that we show in, in every area of our lives, social services, in public health care, in every area, has been framed because we were raised in a nation where the words of Jesus framed our value system. We may have forgotten it, but that's where it came from. And because artists down the years have depicted the words of Jesus, it hasn't only been in Bibles that these great stories have been uh, told and had their impact on the human soul. This one was, written, it was painted by Vincent van Gogh. And Vincent knew the story. You see the red arrow to the top? That's the priest disappearing over the horizon. And the one, the second red arrow, the lower one, there's the Levite doing exactly the same. But here is a Samaritan. The Bible says in the words of Jesus, when he saw him, when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now, I've got to tell you something. I've been coming home from church for a long time. You know, in all the years of me, of me going to church on a Sunday and coming home, I have never once found some dude beat up by robbers and lying half dead on the side of the road. The closest I've ever come to it was I found a guy who was naked tied to a lamppost one night. And I stopped to help him and I found out it was his bucks night and it was his friends who did it to him. Um, so I'm not sure that it yet qualifies as my good Samaritan moment. You see, one of the problems I have faced as a Christian is that so much of the brokenness of the world in which I live goes on behind closed doors. Every now and then it erupts onto the streets, but mostly, by and large, you don't find people beaten up by robbers and lying half dead on the side of the road. No, no, uh, in our community, it's hidden in a far more respectable place. But let me tell you this. Some years ago, for 10 years, I led a church and we loved what we were doing because we preached the word the best we knew how and we had good home groups the best we knew how to do. 
And yet I drove home every Sunday after church, passing thousands and thousands of homes where people had been, were half dead and beaten up by the devil and I never saw them. I just never saw it. See, here's the reality. We are surrounded by pain. But it's behind closed doors. If you were to walk out out of your house, doesn't matter where your house is, walk down any street near your house, walk down any street near your church, by the time you have knocked on 10 doors, if you could hear the story of what goes on inside that house, you would find everything on this list. Chemical dependency, gambling addiction, sexual abuse, sexual addiction, marriage breakdown, divorce, parenting, problems, family dysfunction, grief, eating disorders, shame, guilt, self-hatred, codependency, insecurity, depression, poverty, financial mismatch. You'd, you'd find it all. And some houses you'd find it all in just one house. Oh, people are being beaten up by the devil and they're half dead all over our community. But see, I just never saw it. And then God began to open my eyes to the reality of what our church could be. It started with one of my staff members. It started with Rona. Rona was hearing the stories of women in our community who who were survivors of sexual abuse. And one day in in a communion service, she said, God broke my heart for female survivors of sexual abuse. And I said to God, I'll do whatever I can. She bought books and began to read them. She began to prepare her own uh, little counselling course on sexual abuse. And when we launched that course in our church, we could identify 72 female survivors sitting in our congregation every Sunday and hundreds of them in the community. And because Jesus is in his church, when we began to speak into that situation, Jesus showed up because the church is the body of Christ. He is the greatest healer the world will ever know. And even though we were not experts, they began to encounter a restoring expression of the love of God. And as they did, they began to tell their parents. They began to tell, not their parents, they began to tell their friends. Well, they could have told their parents too. That might have helped. They began to tell their friends. And then their friends began to show up and a little trickle of needy people from our community began to show up at our church who would never have thought to even entertain taking this issue to a church. And over a period of time, the trickle turned into a flood until there was a line of people stretched out from her office doors over the horizon. But because we had not learned how to be a restoring community, it burned her out. But it got my attention and I realised... There's, a, there's an avenue here in, our, in the brokenness. You want revival? Touch the brokenness of people. Touch the areas in their life where they know they need help. And that's exactly what we began to do. Chemical dependency, gambling addiction, sexual, sexual addiction. It's why I created the Valiant Man course. So many marriages destroyed because men in particular, but not only men, had never had sexual discipleship and their own sex life was destroying their household. Marriage breakdown. 
When I first moved into our area, I built a house. Right over the back fence, there was a guy from England, a guy called David. David was building his house. And I thought, I can't wait till I finish my house. I'll invite him over and I'll share my radiant faith with him and I'll see if I can win my neighbour for Jesus. <clears throat> well, we finished our houses. I invited him over for dinner. And there around the table, I was sharing with him uh, how we were doing mission outreach in India and how people, God loved people. And, and he thought, oh, good, good Lord, I've got a Christian next door. Back, you foul Christian, back. It didn't open a door of salvation. It scared the daylights out of him. And all I could do for the next years was be a good neighbour to him because he wasn't wanting to hear that. And yet I will never forget Coming home from a wedding one Saturday afternoon, I pulled up in my driveway and as I did, a car pulled up right behind me. It was my next door neighbour. Later on, he would tell me he drove, he drove out of his driveway, sitting there, intending to drive his car down the highway and smash it into a tree. I drove past him and something in his heart, it's called the Holy Spirit, said to him, maybe Al could help. He followed me around the corner, dropped, pulled up, got out of his car with tears running down his face and he said, Al, my marriage is failing. Do you think you could help me? He came to church the next day. Helen was speaking, he gave his life to Jesus and for the next year, I tried to help him save his marriage. I couldn't help him uh, save his marriage. I could only help him have a good divorce. But out of that, he became an intercessory warrior. He leads the intercessory prayer ministry back at the church that we left behind. The open door wasn't through my testimony. It was through his own brokenness and his own, his own grievance, grieving over his own marriage. Restoration was the pathway for him. Never forget sitting in my office one day and a secretary came in and said, there's a man from Four Corners here. He wants to talk to you. And I thought, oh, great. They're going to expose us on TV. Just what we needed. <laughs> Brought the guy in, sat him down. He said, I want to film in your church. I said, why? He said, we've been creating a program based on 14 people who were sexually abused in the Catholic system. Um, all of them, their lives are spiralling down. One of them starts to spiral up and we ask him why and he says he's getting help at a church. He said, we want to know what kind of a church is it that can help someone who was abused in the church? Well, I didn't know who they were, who they were talking about. So I said, what's the story? I had to find out. I had, we had a marriage course uh, functioning at that time. We had a couple go through the marriage course. Now they're sharing over the back fence with their neighbours about the marriage course, the stairwell of communication. The next door neighbour says, well, that sounds like brilliant stuff. How do you get into a course like that? Well, oh, come with me. I'll help you get in. He turned up, him and his little wife, and on the final night, the 10th night of that series, he said to the small group leaders, how do you give your life to Jesus? And he and his wife and his three little children were sitting in our congregation. I'd never met them. How did they get there? The pain of their own struggling and broken marriage. Divorce, parenting problems, family. I look, I could go on. But I began to see that Jesus, the greatest healer of the world, access to the broken of our community is in part through their own brokenness. Just let them know how Christ could make a difference in their life. But you have to see it. I love this painting by Ferdinand Hodler. Because it demonstrates when you come to one of these people, you've got to get up close. You've got to be prepared to hear their story. You've got to be prepared to share Jesus confidently. Be, be certain our, our church could help. When he saw him, 
He took pity on him. Now we go to the painting by Johann Lot. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. I've had people say to me, oh, you're just helping people. You know, that, that's not the gospel. That's just a band-aid solution. Jesus thought a band-aid was a pretty good idea at the right time. Put a band-aid on him because it's a pathway to an encounter with the living God. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn and took care of him. You see, donkeys for us became the key. And over the coming years, I hope to train many donkeys in all of the numerous outreaches around the world as this unfolds. Because donkeys are brilliant. Not every, you see, donkeys have a wonderful role to play in the Bible. They don't get to say a lot. There is only one recorded speech from a donkey in the entire Bible. And all he gets to say is, what are you hitting me for? And it's not, a profound out, it's not a profound insight, but the donkey was doing a profound job. Because what donkeys do is they help people make a journey they couldn't do by themselves. And that's what great small group leaders do. That's what great facilitators do. They may not be able to teach. They may not be qualified counsellors. They may not be the experts in their field, but they love people. And they're willing to patiently help them do a journey that they could never do by themselves. We created donkeys. And as a result, we became a church that could restore. He took him to an inn and took care of him. Now Rembrandt gets into the picture. Jesus believes in referrals. A church can't be all things to all people. And sometimes the great role of a church is to get to know people well enough to help them get to the right person who can help them. Sometimes that person is a doctor. Sometimes it's an accountant. Sometimes it's a lawyer. Sometimes it's a teacher. But the great thing about a church is you build this great network of restoration. And you help people get to the right help. And as a consequence, um, it can be expensive. But usually the expense is really time and emotions tears and care he took him to an inn gave him to the innkeeper and said look after him and when I return I'll reimburse you for any extra expense you may have I want to show you this picture I don't like this picture this is a picture of me it's a picture of the church I led for 10 years for 10 years I was the dude out front with the sacraments and the word and my faithful Levites ride behind me but for years we really missed the opportunity in our community to see how broken our community was and to realise that we held in our hands and in our hearts the greatest healer the world will ever know. It was not only about salvation but many times restoration was a pathway that led them to him until God opened our eyes. Now Jesus says these words. He says this to the lawyer. Which of these three do you think was a neighbour to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, well, I think it's the one who had mercy on him. Jesus said, you are brilliant. That's the life that reveals the heart of God. I love what C.S. Lewis says. C.S. Lewis said, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. It is, is his megaphone to rouse a death world. We have a great untapped resource in this nation. It's pain bringing Christ. 
Part of a New Testament church is helping people just like you to get into this kind of ministry. My job is not to try to minister to everyone. Pastor Corey's job is not to try to minister to everyone. It's to prepare God's people for works of service. And Helen and I are here to bring the, the skill and the capacity that we have to help some of you find this as an area of profound ministry in the years to come. How is it possible to delegate this kind of ministry to everybody? To, to people that are, to, that are relatively um, not experts in their field. Well, it's simple. You do good training. You put good tools in their hand. You give them the structure and the support. You use your best people, your experts, to guide them and support them and then believe that the church is the body of Christ. Jesus lives in this place and that's why so much ex extraordinary things can be done by very ordinary people. Let me tell you one last story and then I'm done. I'm talking to you about good works. The wonderful thing about good works is it creates goodwill. We were on our way home from a conference trying to learn how to do this better and Helen said to me, Al, we've got to create um, a course for children that aren't doing well at school, that can't make friends, that aren't learning well. And out of that, we drew a group of great people together and we built a course called Kids with Courage. We launched it in our own church and then the local primary school allowed us to run it in their primary school until eventually we were running it in five local primary schools giving children an opportunity to encounter the healing love of Jesus. I'm in church one Sunday and this big burly plumber comes in one day with... Uh, his little wife and little trailer kids, but they're being led by a 10-year-old boy. 10-year-old boy has been doing Kids With Courage in his local primary school. And the facilitators have become his friends and shared Christ with him. And he's been going home and telling his parents, you know, we don't talk like that. We don't say it that way. This is the way we say it. And eventually dad says, who is this person? Who, is, who are these people? And a little child leads them into church for the first time and another family begins a journey into the kingdom of heaven because good works creates goodwill and goodwill opens people's hearts for good news. By the grace of God, Helen and I make ourselves available. We're going to live the final years of our life in ministry helping as many as we can, to find their ministry in restoration. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This isn't everybody's ministry, although everybody can play some part, but for some of you, this is why you were born. And in the years ahead, there are people who, who today don't know who Jesus is and don't know how loved they are and don't even know what the term the kingdom of heaven actually means. But through their struggles, through hearing your story and sharing with you their story, through encountering a restorative experience in a Numa church, they're going to come to know Jesus. And you're going to be the donkey who helps them do the journey. Father, in the name of Jesus, I lift my hands 
over our own congregation and over our broken world. God, we make ourselves available in the year ahead, the years ahead. Help us to expand our capacity to carry you into the arms of the broken. Let there be a revival of restoration in the pain of life in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us for this message today. We don't assume that every person listening has a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And so today, we invite you to begin following Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The Bible teaches that every one of us has been created for a relationship with God. Sin has separated us from that relationship, but God loved us so much that He gave us His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus lived, died, and rose again, conquering sin, Satan, and death itself. If we believe in our hearts that God has raised Jesus from the dead and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. So if you are ready to pray in faith, turning away from your sin and believing in Jesus for your salvation, please pray this prayer. Dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God and I ask you to forgive me and cleanse my heart from all of my sin. I receive by faith the free gift of eternal life, and I ask that you would fill me with the Holy Spirit. I thank you that I am born again as a child of God and that you have made me a new creation in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you have prayed that prayer for the first time, we would love to know and help connect you to a local church in your area. You can contact us on our website, numa.church. Thank you for listening.